podcast one production. At some point last year, I learned an interesting statistic. Globally, we manufacture two cars per second. Since I know how long a billion seconds is, it's 31 years, seven months, and a few days, I knew that in half that time, we'd manufacture the next billion cars. So much for inspiration. Here's the thing. In a recent issue of The Economist, I saw a Bloomberg chart that gave forward projections for automobile manufacturing. And sure enough, the figures for 2017 and 2018 came out at about two cars a second, but they grew from there. And by around 2025, we're at 100 million cars a year. That's closer to three cars a second. And it only takes a decade to manufacture the next billion cars. Now, Bloomberg's predictions trail off from around the mid-2030s at around 110 million cars a year. That's nine years to make the next billion cars. Any way that you look at the data, it seems that those next billion cars are coming faster than we thought. But is that right? Oh, Mark, I'm not so sure. Data released this week showed Chinese sales have been declining for 12 months in a row now, and Geely Auto sales are down 27% on this time last year. European manufacturers are facing 33 billion euros in fines if they don't lower their CO2 emissions by 20-odd percent by 2021. But the cost of compliance heavy electrification of their entire fleet will make small cars almost impossible to sell profitably. And in America, by the end of May, the automotive sector had cut 21,446 jobs. That's up by 211% from last year. All the while, sales of pickups, long the reliable cash cows of American manufacturers, are on the slide. Renault-Nissan is tearing themselves apart while jumping into and out of bed with Fiat Chrysler, and old frenemies Jaguar Land Rover and BMW are back in bed having make-up sex over electrification strategies. If I'm honest, it's all a bit confusing right now. But Sal, there must be some good news back home in Australia, right? Uh, do you mean the country that doesn't actually make any cars? Because obviously we won't be making any of those billions. Uh, But you're right, Drew. I mean, Australia has always been an interesting proposition. Internationally, we're known as a good test market for all sorts of interesting things because we can be a bit pointy, but our auto industry is incredibly male-centric, incredibly conservative, and our take-up of alternative fuel technology is a slow crawl. And just a few years ago, when I was still in the thick of judging cars and attending shows, it did seem like the Aussie auto industry was reassuringly strong and well-funded. And even when my American and European journo colleagues were losing their junk at benefits, we Aussies were getting flown first class. So we were like, clearly everything is apples in Australia. We were known as this discerning market because no manufacturers would even send their base models to Australia. Aussies love quality, they love luxury, they love SUVs. Actually, interestingly, for the last couple of years, they love dual cab trucks. So apparently we're all tradies. I don't know. 
but it does seem that the Australia as an Oasis concept is starting to falter. New car sales are down almost 10%. The kids don't want licences anymore. And that apathy we're seeing around passenger cars and even SUVs is real here too. So I've seen huge upheaval as a journalist. My colleagues who weren't laid off a few years back when a bunch of magazines and papers closed and shrunk We hit earlier this year with another big contraction as fewer and fewer professional writers are paid to share their vehicle expertise. And the tricky situation for Australia, I think, is that our aversion to electric vehicles was all about range. So how on earth is the cars as a service model or the self-driving car scenario going to work without the nationwide density that requires to succeed? So Aussies may not want new cars, but I don't see the non-city dwellers champing at the bit for the alternatives either. Look, it cannot all be true. Either the auto industry is imploding or it's heading to its best days ever. It can't be both, can it? You know me, Mark. I'm a researcher at heart. And if there's one thing we've done these past nine episodes, we've collected a lot of data about the state of the industry. We really need to take another look at what it's telling us. I've just spent time with a design and business visionary tasked with helping Daimler become an agile innovator. And his work is a microcosm of what's happening generally in the auto industry as these classic old business models full of legacy, hierarchy and fat try to deal with this new tech-laden, exponentially changing century. It's a complete rethink of structure, a change from focusing on the physical product to understanding the larger ecosystem and on spreading a sustainable footprint through a number of diverse initiatives. We don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's still room for wisdom and legacy and cars in an auto future. But honestly, a bit of public sage-like thought leadership in this culture shock transition would be really helpful. And I mean, maybe that's us. Successful 21st century companies talk about massive transformational purpose. And I'd ask, what is the massive transformational purpose of Daimler or Toyota or Audi? They need to stop buying tech companies and think for a moment about their core value and their core purpose. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. And I'm Sally Dominguez. And I'm Drew Smith. And on this final episode of The Next Billion Cars, we're going to see if we can apply what we've learned, because we've learned a lot. So join us as we try to sort out the truth from the fiction as we hit the accelerator on the road ahead. What I've learned. Hmm. Well, I'm not sure I like what I've learned, but I'm glad I've learned it. We have to go all the way back. This is two years ago to my conversation with robotics pioneer Ken Goldberg. So I am uh, pretty critical of the of the expectations around self-driving cars. So you think they're not going to come in the next five years? Not 10 years. I have a bet. I'm willing to take a bet that in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Right. Which is where you're from. Right. And the fully autonomous vehicle, which is what Uber is claiming, right, that they're going to have these, you know, no, no drivers at all, uh, that they're, I will say that in 10 years that will not be common in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And I will bet on that. Now, until that point, I had accepted the inevitability of self-driving cars. It was a given. Of course they'd happen. I should have known better. I mean, I specifically should have known better. Why? Well, because I'm not just a futurist. I'm a computer scientist, and I know what it takes to create an autonomous vehicle. 
And I know just how slow progress has been. So Ken's words, they hit me like a slap in the face. They brought me back to reality. Back to this real world. A real world of incredible complexity and utter unpredictability. Where people are crazy and do crazy things all the time because they're people. And I realized I believed the lie of autonomous vehicles. Well, basically because I wanted to believe in it. Not because I knew better. Because what I knew, it told me just the opposite. And you know, when you want to believe, you can ignore the truth. For a while. But as my mentor taught me a long time ago, reality is that which is going to kill you when you ignore it long enough. And that's exactly what we don't want here. We don't want to be hurled into a world of autonomous vehicles that are only half-baked, if that, just because we want them. Now, the world has told us that they're just around the corner. We've been told this by the CEO of Daimler, by the CEO of Google, by the CEO of Uber, by the CEO of Tesla. And the public reckoned that they could trust these folks because they knew what they were talking about. And so that's how this outrageous assertion became a commonly accepted fact. And let me be clear, I don't mean to say that autonomous vehicles are impossible, only as Ken Goldberg pointed out, that they're much, much harder than they appear. And the more that we've taught computers how to drive, the more we've learned just how complex a task driving is. But then, here's the thing. It's something that every driver knows, isn't it? I mean, if you've learned to drive, I remember when my kid sister had her first driving lesson. She came back home in tears running out of the car where her instructor had been absolutely ruthless in getting her to focus on the road. Driving isn't easy, even if it feels that way after we've been doing it for a few years. But our first years as a driver, they're anxious, nervous ones. They're filled with this kind of hypervigilance, learning to keep track of everything, learning to integrate all of that sensory experience, learning to make the best decision in a very chaotic and dynamic environment. We get some of that anxiety back when we're driving in a new country or in bad road conditions. We lapse back into that hypervigilance because that's our best hope to stay alive. And many drivers, they long to release that anxiety. Let the car worry about the road and the other drivers while we relax and just move toward our destination. It sounds lovely. And I reckon that's exactly the reason we fell for it. Where we really are, in the middle of 2019, it's something completely different. Google has a whole fleet of Waymo taxis, and they still have a human driver behind the wheel. Now, Google are claiming they have level 3 autonomy, that the driver doesn't need their hands on the wheel all the time. But I'm not sure how far I'd trust that vehicle fleet without all of that human oversight, and... Google are probably further along in autonomy than anyone else. I recently read a report about an autonomous delivery vehicle coming online in Sweden. It was a really big deal, but the top speed for that vehicle? Five kilometers an hour. That's basically only decent walking speed. So if there are any collisions, they're going to be minor. And that's another way to de-risk an autonomous vehicle, make it almost ridiculously slow. Is it level 4 autonomy? Well, 
Level 4 does state that the car would be driven just as a human would drive it. Humans do not drive 5 kilometers an hour everywhere. So this doesn't really pass the sniff test either. And then there's the question of sensors. How does an autonomous vehicle see the world around? Now, in Episode 3, we talked to Aussie startup Baraha about their LiDAR technology. This is a scanning technology. LiDAR is a critical sensor for self-driving cars. Um, I think there's only one outspoken CEO in this industry that said that it's not necessary, but uh, he's also said he could be wrong. Uh, And it seems like everybody else thinks he probably is, given the uptake of LiDAR and the amount of interest in the technology. So what you're seeing here on the screen is, is the... Um, melding of all four of what we call sensor heads on the roof into this cohesive single point cloud here Um, and we can you know fly around inside of this and zoom around uh, to our heart's content and as as we drive around you'll be able to see cars you'll be able to see pedestrians you'll be able to see the road surface itself and um, and the structure of the uh, environment around it everyone reckons lidar is the future except one person, Elon Musk. Now, we have to hand it to Elon for making the electric car seem like an inevitability and incredibly sexy. But he's oversold autonomy, badly. Tesla vehicles don't have LiDAR because Musk thinks it's expensive and unnecessary. In his view, humans don't need LiDAR to drive a car. But then, on the other hand, we have half a billion years of evolution backing up our visual cortex, helping us make sense out of sensation. Musk wants a Tesla to operate like a person does, to process all of that visual information, abstract meaning from it, and make decisions based on that meaning. All of that in a fraction of a second. It's not impossible, but it's not easy, and it's not just around the corner. But he's doubling down, because to admit defeat would be to admit that all of the Teslas that have been manufactured from day one will never be able to do more than level two autonomy, basically a smarter cruise control. It's a nice feature, but it's not the vision that we've been sold. So when, in that very first episode of The Next Billion Seconds, John Alsop said, so I live somewhere where I have to drive quite a long way with the kids from, you know, at the weekends, it's, it's half an hour drive out to all the activities they do. So we spend a lot of time talking about that and they've lived a lot in their, their cars. And when, when kids get to be on you know, their late, you know, early teens, I guess at 11, you're very much in your early teens these days, they kind of start thinking about, oh, I can't wait till I'm driving. And, and I remember this conversation relatively recently with my oldest and the other kids are in the car and she said, oh, I can't wait till I drive. And I thought to myself, you know, you're going to drive probably, it's only five or six years, but my four-year-old, she's not going to drive. She's never going to learn to drive. And my seven girl, my daughter who's just turned seven, I don't think she is either. So I've got this split. I think my two older girls will probably learn to drive, but I I definitely don't think driving will be a thing humans do by the time my four-year-old, you know, in, in a dozen years' time. All of that at the time seemed perfectly reasonable. But that was more than two years ago. Level four autonomy, we were told it was only four years away. Well, two years later... Level 4 autonomy is at least five years away from here, and Ken Goldberg is right. It's probably more like 10 years away. The closer we get, the further it recedes. Is it just a dream? Probably not. But by the time we get it, it won't feel as monumental 
as it felt just a few years ago, because it will arrive in dribs and drabs, feature by feature, manufacturer by manufacturer, spread out over the next billion cars. And even then, we might not be there. That's the main point here. We just don't know. So don't believe any of it. Technology isn't about believing. It's about putting tools to work. And those tools have a long way to go. Like I said at the beginning, I'm not sure I like what I've learned, but I'm glad I've learned it. I watch the massive churn in this industry with a mixture of fascination and horror. In an effort to understand what exponential technologies might save the car companies and the driving experiences that I love, I've dug into techie topics I would normally avoid. I've learned that the data driving driverless car technologies has the power to totally transform society, but is yet not being governed. I've learned that robotics and deep machine learning will enable cars to not only detect mechanical issues, but to come up with repair solutions on the fly. And again, the boundaries and the ethics of that machine intelligence are not being governed. I've learned that, depending on where you drive in the future, data right down to your facial tics and micro reactions is being gathered via the cameras in the city as well as the screens in your car and shared with or without your knowledge or consent. I'm hearing that the youth of the world don't want to drive and I honestly feel like they're missing out on a visceral thrill. But I also know we're a greying society and at least in the USA and Australia where I spend most of my time, that means people like me who love to drive are still wanting cars. The world is on the cusp of a huge transformation. Cars are just one part of this massive swirling puzzle. Recently, I visited Daimler's Lab 1886 in Berlin. There, innovation visionary Martin Ebrahimschel has constructed an innovation lab that enables ideas at Daimler to be developed into separate companies with a small carriage shareholding. This spreads the Daimler footprint wider than it's ever been and builds an innovation ecosystem that is responsive and effective. As a car enthusiast applying his expertise to an iconic car company that is trying to adapt to the 21st century, I feel that Matan has a bird's eye view of our immediate driving future. So I asked him what he saw coming in the next 15 years. I love that question, as I'm a very uh, car enthusiast. I'm, a, I'm not, not just a guy from Daimler. I love the cars what we build and others building as well. And I love riding. Uh, so the difference between what I like and what the, uh, where the industry will go within the next 15 years is like a very... So nobody's really able to say, of course, you got all these initiatives of robocars, robotaxis, initiatives where's Uber running, where we're running within the Mercedes-Benz world or with our new partners from the BMW on the, uh, on the service side uh, and, and other, lots of other parties who are now investing tons of billions in, in the robocar industry. But I totally agree with you that uh, the passion for the cars will stay like the ownership maybe will change a bit, the ownership thing of you um, owning things. But as we as premium car manufacturer um, having the customers who want to own things and not to share things will stay. So it will be a very, it will be a, 
smaller market, but as the world population will grow heavily as well, I hope that we can have like the, on that level with the, with, the, with the small growth. But I would say that um, owning cars will stay a thing, running cars will stay a thing, whether it's like combustion in 15 years, I don't really think that that will run with a very small, more on the logistics side or transport, transportation side. But um, technological wise, we'll have uh, um, with fuel cell and other things like, of course, like electric is like really also in 15 years. I don't think that electric will survive the 15 years. Um, my, my Maybe hydrogen. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. This is the for me by far the only thing which will run by far. It's like I can't really. Um, I know it because I had lots of talks with uh, with our new CEO with Ola Kalinius that we are still investing in the in the in the in the F-cell technology. Uh, in my point of view, to less, but we we still investing instead of all lots of others who are not doing it. But having these around thousand people still working on it uh, gives us an advantage technological wise because the big wave should is by far that technology. And then there will come other things. So coming back to the transportation, there will be these, all these autonomous fleets who will bring us from A to B, and not tomorrow, not in five years, but with the trust, like always, it's the trust thing, it's not a technological thing. Um, by, by, by law, probably within the next five to 10 years. Technological-wise, within the next one or two years. Um, on the streets, in 15 years. Um, the passion will stay for driving yourself and owning yourself. I'm very convinced on that. Luxury will stay luxury, and owning is a luxury topic, right? And having the passion and this thing in the eyes of, I want to run that and I want to <laughs> own it. Damn, <laughs> I love that. Uh, I want to have that Mercedes because of this and that. Um, I want to control how fast I go. <laughs> I got this like, I, I'm living in Berlin. I, I got the possibility to, to drive the best cars and the fastest cars in the world. And I uh, live in Germany and driving a lot and able to go with high speed on the Autobahn. It's, it's a lovely thing. Uh, uh, here in Berlin, it's like I'm riding here with my uh, Vespa from uh, year 76 because it's running ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and this sound is just amazing. It's like that amazing than opening a door from a G-Wagon. But... I would want to open it and close it by myself. And I want to run my 45 years old Vespa by myself. And I want to own it. And in 15 years, in, in, I'm convinced that that will stay for a long time. So it seems Matan and I share the same visceral thrill of driving and the same belief that hydrogen is a future fuel to watch. We also share that point of view that goes way back to Aristotle. Happiness depends on ourselves. As long as people derive happiness from owning and customising luxury goods, there will be a market for cars. In fact, as long as owning and customising a house remains relevant, I believe people will continue to want to own their own car. So I'm watching intently to see which car companies step up and make this truth viable for the 21st century. If the auto industry is about to head into another crisis, it won't be my first rodeo. Although we think of the 2008 global financial crisis as being something that affected primarily banks and the folks saddled with toxic mortgages, 
Given that the second most expensive purchase people often make is a car, it was a sucker punch for the automotive industry too. Sales collapsed across Western markets. Now, to be clear, experiencing the trauma of entering an industry, the industry of your childhood dreams, just as it goes into meltdown, is not something I recommend. But it did bring out a sort of youthful optimism in me. It suggested that we were about to be handed the most amazing opportunity to push the automotive industry in a more positive, equitable and sustainable direction. I started reading about shared mobility and right-sizing cities and Jane Jacobs and Yang Giel. I started thinking what our clients might look like as providers of platforms and services rather than simply makers of product. I started blogging profusely and furiously calling for my heroes and my idols to do more to prepare us for the future. And I still remember the withering look on my boss's face as he told me that we didn't need to bother ourselves with all that. He said we just needed to get people to fall in love with buying cars again. Not long after, I left his company and I left the industry. For the next 10 years, I helped banks, airlines, hotels, and a myriad other types of companies build better relationships with their customers and staff, all on the basis that if you could better understand people's needs, you could build them better products and services. So when a car company got in touch just last year and offered me the opportunity to do the same thing for them, I thought, finally, the time has come. But 10 years later, one crisis down and on the edge potentially of another, we're not quite there yet. Why? Well, as one of my design research heroes, Erica Hall, says, everybody wants to innovate, but nobody wants to change. Because change requires new things of you. It's hard, and it's very often painful. Take, for example, Chris Bangle on the subject of automakers getting into the service business. I mean, I would argue that it's not rocket science, but it is plumbing. Uh, because if you look at uh, many of the challenges that are in front of us, they all they all uh, stumble over, uh, you know, like, for instance, autonomous cars or things like that or, or services like who cleans it? You know, and I mean, we've managed to put everything in a car except the toilet. So if that's, you know, the next frontier, then truly it isn't rocket science. It really is plumbing. There's something about where our our interaction with the world of uh, living a life uh, instead of just going from A to B comes into cars that um, if they want to compete with uh, airlines and you know what, funny enough, every airplane does have a toilet. And if they want to compete with trains and things like that, and funny enough, trains have an enormous amount of service personnel on board, you know, walking around asking if you want a snack and stuff like that. They're getting into a world where it's, it's, again, it's not rocket science what we're talking about, but it isn't easily transferable into, as you mentioned before, the scalable type of non-human-based production that they've come to perfect. And that is a big challenge. What we're talking about here is not just a change in what a car company sells, but a change in the way it makes things, how it makes things, and where it makes things. I discussed this with Jay Rogers in our previous episode, looking at the future of manufacturing. But more important than all of this, what we need more than anything else 
is a change in the culture of the industry to make it more open, more outward-looking and more inclusive. Because to serve people better, we need new ways of thinking about our role in the world. At a recent conference for leaders of the industry, one at which out of 22 speakers, only two were women, a man was asked on stage whether it was easier dealing with Chinese management or his household of women. I heard an MC joke, again on stage, about the fact that wives all seem to get fat at the age of 40, like the Porsche 911 did. I heard an analyst for an investment bank saying that continued growth in China would depend on selling consumers their second and third cars. And I heard a CEO saying that he didn't really need to be scientific about identifying his customers' needs. He was really just focused on improving his sales volume. Mate Rimatch's thoughts on the state of industry management came flooding back to me. So the industry is turning on its head and it's one of the biggest industries in the world and especially in Europe, a lot of people depend on that. So it's going to be very, very interesting. And uh, the scary thing is that there are lots of old people in the, uh, at helms of those companies. I mean, they're not stupid, they know what they are doing, but uh, I think that Nokia also has a good management team. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, let, let's, see, let's see what happens. So at this point, you might be thinking, burn the whole thing down. But this isn't the time for nihilism. Because whether we're designing, building, buying or using cars, we're actually all in this together. And dealing with the climate crisis depends on a fast, thoughtful transition to a more sustainable future for the automotive industry. But is it going to be the traditional OEMs that drive this change? Or will they be left behind by new entrants with new types of products, services and business models? Well, between European CO2 legislation, the electrification arms race going on between China and Japan, there are sticks and carrots abounds for OEMs to get on board. But that culture problem I talked about, it's driving away the very people we need to push this transition. Over the past year, I've watched some of the most amazing young designers and engineers head for jobs with Apple, Tesla, software companies, autonomous car startups, local governments and micromobility providers. Because all the talk, and it is mostly talk, of new business models, disrupting the industry from within, and car-branded electric bikes on motor show stands, is starting to feel like Emperor's New Clothes because working on 10-year product plans seems pointless if that means it'll be too late to make a real impact on climate change. Because the sexism, misogyny, xenophobia and old boys club of the industry make it impossible for dissenting voices and constructive criticism to be heard. But if these immensely talented people aren't at OEMs, they are still out there, still wanting to make change. And they'll find the companies that are willing to make that change with them, willing to listen, willing to risk failure for the sake of trying something new in the hope of making something better. And that, that fills me with hope. All right, kids, I got to be honest with you. I thought this was going to kill me, but it feels like there's some cause for celebration here because actually what we've learned over the last nine episodes is that it isn't all doom and gloom, that there are actually some 
causes for hope out there. I mean, Mark, what's got you excited about the next billion cars? Look, I think the things that have me excited is that there are hard problems that have to be solved. It's like we can't actually gloss them. We can't kick the can down the road. Autonomy is really hard. The further we get into it, the harder it gets. It doesn't mean we're not going to solve it. It means we're probably going to create an entirely new discipline at some intersection between vehicle and robotics and artificial intelligence that's going to be very vital over the 21st century there. It means that we're going to have new kinds of power storage, new kinds of electricity grids. But, you know, we all want EVs, but there ain't nowhere in the world right now that has charging in infrastructure for EVs. And we just all have to go, wait a minute. If we want EVs, we're going to have to build out this enormous charging structure that we don't have. And so at some level, you can be really excited because you can go, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of capital that needs to be invested. There could be a lot of jobs created, a whole new economy, the same way that the economy of the car trans formed the economy of the 20th, 20th century and built the 20th century, that we could be building the 21st century again around the car. So I, I am really excited about that, but you cannot make light of the fact that the car industry is being eaten alive by all of the challenges that it's facing. Sal, I mean, what do you think? It, it's an era of transformation and that can be scary and that can be really exciting. And I think we're facing both. I mean, we could be looking at the future where a hybrid becomes a house car, new type of vehicle that we all live in. We could, when we talk about um, the power storage potential of cars, they suddenly become something else again. You know, I think that we have this period of time and I don't even think it's 10 years, but I think we have a period of time where some really crucial questions need to be answered. I think we need governance around ethics at the really basic data level of what we're putting into this artificial intelligence, what decisions we want it to make. Um, we have a massive lack of governance in that area. And I think that bit scary, but I think as a designer, the potential for the kind of hybrid vehicles, and I don't just mean hybrid power, I mean, you know, hybrid function and these things that could be so much more than just uh, uh, um, moving from A to B on wheels. I think it's exciting. I'm excited. And it's good that you talk about governance because there's also the whole role that government has to play in this. The government, in fact, is going to have to drive this. I and mean, so, Drew, you were talking to Robin from Zipcar, and she was really talking about the importance of getting government on board to help structure the way we're using the space in our cities for cars. And it feels like there needs to be not just the draw of getting this right and making billions of dollars, but there needs to be the goad. So it's the carrot and the stick here. How do we get that to happen? Well, and I think this is one of the huge challenges for the automotive sector as a whole is how does it learn to become a good citizen of cities? How does it learn to become a good citizen of countries as its, as its role is being kind of upended? And I think there's a really interesting space emerging for people who can successfully facilitate conversations between the OEMs governments and the citizens that those governments are supposed to be serving. Uber, which has been sitting very much at that intersection of bad company and regulation and the future of mobility, announced that they were going to have an air taxi service and that the first international city with that service was going to be Melbourne. But 
As soon as you dug down a little bit into this, you realized because they interviewed someone from CASA, so that's our regulatory authority for the air, on the ABC, and they said, well, they haven't actually submitted a design to us, so we don't know what kind of flight it's going to be. We don't know if it's going to be fixed wing or if it's going to be more like a helicopter. We don't know the route it's going to be flying, other than we know that it'll be going from the airport into the city to take basically 10 minutes off of a 25-minute trip, which doesn't seem like it's enough, and it also seems like it's going to be really noisy because these things are going to be flying below the normal aircraft lanes. And so is this really the future? I mean, Sal, this just sounds like it's so much hot air. So, Mark, you remember at CES, we saw a bunch of these vertical takeoff potential passenger vehicles. And again, none of them anywhere near being reality. And I think... Like so much in this industry, people are talking a big talk because they want to get people excited about what they're doing. They want to get investment money, whatever it is. But we're not going to see this stuff in the next five or even seven years. It's not coming. So in the meantime, what is in that void? I mean, do we exist in this sort of flux of uncertainty or does someone say, actually, we're doing this this is the future for now, people still want this, here's what we have. Instead of, you know, I feel like there's a lot of distraction, there's a lot of flag waving, and I don't think it's doing anyone a service. Well, and Sal, I can't agree with you more on that point, and one of the things that I found so disappointing as I've dug into the uh, 2021 targets for the European industry is that it's pretty much impossible to get a plug-in hybrid or EV in Europe right now. For love nor money, you cannot get one of the mass market EVs. Why is that? It's not because they don't exist. It's because the manufacturers are withholding them until they go on sale next year when they will start to bring down the corporate CO2 targets. So there's so much chicanery going on behind the scenes in order to try and massage the way forward for the industry. And it just reeks of a little bit of uh, inauthenticity, if I'm honest. Well, and it's not just that it's reeking of inauthenticity because... Uh, Yes, I mean, capital is going to do what capital is going to do, which is to try to sort of shift the game board as much as it can. But at the same time, they're defeating themselves because the more CO2 we're putting into the air here, the harder it's going to be to make another internal combustion engine because people will simply be more resistant to them. So they're cutting themselves out as well. Now, someone had to run the numbers on it and realize that it made sense to block things in the short term for the long-term gain, but they probably didn't look at the bigger picture of what happens when the EU and the EU will likely add act first, just make it so punitive to continue to pollute with CO2 that it becomes impossible to actually make engines. And, you know, where I live, it's an, a, a different issue. Everybody has a Tesla or a few have volts and leaves and things, but pretty much everyone has a Tesla. Now that we have three models, we're covering SUV, small car, big sedan, Everywhere I look at Teslas and there are simply not enough charging stations. And unless you have the ability to park off street, you can't just charge that thing on the street. They don't have long extension cords. It doesn't exist. So we have an infrastructure scarcity on this end of it. And, you know, I, I, I feel again, um, it's this sort of half-assed rollout. I'm not saying Elon Musk is half-assed, but I think government and the industry in general, again, if somebody would just say, hey, we're doing this for the next five to seven years and be strong instead of trying to hedge your bets and buy another bloody scooter company, then we might actually have consumer confidence and that's what we need. 
You know, and as much as the NBN rollout in Australia has been half a boondoggle, at the same time, it's now nearly finished and almost every Australian ho- house has a broadband connection of some form. And maybe that you need a municipal ordinance in San Francisco that every house or dwelling of some form has the charging capacities for its residents, that it has to supply an equal number of charging stations to the number of residents or car spots or whatever it might be for that property. Maybe it actually, and this is maybe that space where regulation has to backfill where we're not seeing the market take care of it. Yeah, and that's something that uh, in my inf- interview with Chris Gerdes from the Stanford Car Research Mob, he was very specific about that. You know, we do need to fill the gaps. We do need to hold this kind of development accountable to make sure that we're not just creating, you know, another class. We're not just giving vehicles to the people that have off-street parking, for instance. You know, we have to have a bigger authority thinking through the bigger picture and delivering something that indeed does serve all of society. I mean, bring it on. All right, folks. We're here. Ten episodes later. What we've learned is both good and bad, which is kind of what we maybe thought at the beginning, but we actually now have covered the territory and we can see how much things are transforming. But I think the other thing that we can see now is that, in fact, there are lines being drawn in the sand. There are battlefronts appearing, and whether it's the battlefront around autonomy and who's going to do it and how it's going to work and who's going to set the moral standards... Or the battlefronts around the powertrain, is it going to be electricity, is it going to be hydrogen, where is that going to be, is it going to be internal combustion, can we afford that? Is it going to be one platform manufacturer, is it going to be one software manufacturer? We can see all of these battlefronts forming. So I guess what we're saying is that the next level of where we're going isn't that we have identified the problems, but we're now seeing where the camps are forming around these problems. And that recent proposed and failed merger between Fiat Chrysler and Renault was maybe the formation and then very quick dissolution of another one of those battle lines. So I would like to invite the two of you back after we've all had a decent rest for series two of the next billion cars in which we will explore the coming battlefronts that will define the auto industry in the 21st century. The Next Billion Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Dominguez, Andrew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next million seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Sally Dominguez, Andrew Smith, and Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.